scripture reading is from Isaiah, chapter 61, verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 11. The spirit of exalted Yahweh is upon me, for Yahweh has anointed me. God has sent me to bring good news to those who were poor, to heal broken hearts, to proclaim release to those held captive, and liberation to those in prison to announce a year of favor from Yahweh and the day of God's vindication, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to give them wreaths of flowers instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of tears, a cloak of praise instead of despair. They will be known as trees of integrity planted by Yahweh to display God's glory. They will restore the ancient ruins and rebuild sites long devastated. They will repair the ruined cities neglected for generations. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and sin. So I will faithfully compensate you and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Your descendants will be renowned among the nations and your offspring among the people. All who see you will acknowledge that you are a people blessed by Yahweh. I will joyfully exult in Yahweh, who is the joy of my soul. My God clothed me with a robe of deliverance and wrapped me in a mantle of justice, the way a bridegroom puts on a turban and a bride bedecks herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth its shoots, and a garden brings its seeds to blossom, so exalted Yahweh makes justice sprout, and praise spring up before all nations. This is one of our sacred stories. Thanks be to God. This is the Sunday of joy. Joy, which no one needs to point out, for many of us, is probably in short supply at the moment. Joy can be one of those things you take for granted. It shows up every so often, and when it does, you're grateful for it, but you don't really start asking questions until it's been away for a bit too long. And that's when you might start wondering, where exactly did it go? What is blocking it out? And most importantly, how do I get it back? This is the situation a small group of us at Northminster were in about four months ago, about six months after we locked down. Our feelings were throwing up all sorts of red flags, and it took us a minute to realize for the first time just how much of an impact all of this was having on our well-being. So we started a group to deal with it together. We decided to meet on Sunday mornings over Zoom for 10 weeks to try to see more clearly just what sorts of invisible forces had been playing on our spirits and what we could do about it. Our first meeting was on August 23rd. 
we started working through the best studies and practices that psychology has to offer, looking at the work of academics like Dr. Lori Santos of Yale, Dr. Elizabeth Dunn, Dr. Nick Epley, and their colleagues in positive psychology. And as we studied, we began to realize that much of what we've assumed would bring us joy, or even what passes for joy at all, is actually totally wrong. As we met for those 10 weeks, I discovered that the truth was actually hiding in plain sight, attested to by the great wisdom traditions, including our texts this morning. And that is that joy comes not from grasping at anything, but from surrender. The first mountain we had to scale when it came to understanding joy was the way we imagine joy to begin with. There's this story that we have to unlearn. It's a story that says, if we're not feeling happy, then certain things outside of ourselves can make us happy, if we can just get to them. A few years ago, Amazon was advertising its new one-hour delivery service in big cities. And they said it most blatantly when they put up billboards all over L.A. that said, zero to happy in one hour. So you feel nothing, and we sell you happy, and we can get it to you quickly. This is the story that tells us that when we eat, when we drink, when we buy, when we travel, when we scroll, when we watch, then it'll bring us joy, and it does, for a minute. These things are good for a quick dopamine high, but nothing more. Because, of course, the vacation ends, the plate is empty, and we are left again in the company of our unchanged selves, hungrier, in fact, for our next fix. If you swap out some of those nouns, you could just as easily be describing a cycle of addiction. And while that might be great for the bottom line, as you might predict, it is detrimental to our well-being. Much of what passes for the pursuit of happiness is actually nothing more than the pursuit of distraction. And in the end, we have got nothing more lasting than a hangover and a taste in our mouths. But then, there's another way to imagine joy. What if we thought of it not as something out there to be grasped, but as something in here to be nourished? What if we called joy, as the Buddhists do, a seed always present in the soil of our soul? A seed which may be dormant, and it needs proper nourishment and attention in order to grow. Imagine a tomato plant. In order for your plant to actually grow, you can't just focus on the seed itself. You've got to focus on other things. You've got to focus on the soil, the water, the availability of sunlight, the temperature, the season, the insects, the other plants around it. You focus not directly on the plant, but on all these other factors that enable the plant to grow. Gardening, like joy, is an indirect practice. 
It's as Dr. Viktor Frankl wrote, happiness cannot be pursued. It must ensue. So the question then becomes, what actually nourishes that seed of joy in us? As we studied, we learned that it's not what we usually think. As a matter of fact, the things that we typically turn to, like screen time, are actually actively harmful to our seed of joy. We discovered that the seed of joy is watered, not by any kind of indulgent activity, but by things like exercise and sleep and rest. It's a sprout that's nourished by practices like the uh, med mindfulness meditation, gratitude, and real social connection. It grows as it's nourished by resilience in the face of adversity, by surrender to the service of something greater than ourselves. These are the things that encourage the seed to grow, to strengthen, and to bear fruit. We have got to reimagine joy, not as something out there, but as a seed in the soil of our soul, a seed that has to be nourished in order to grow. In our group, this image became so central that we named the class Watering the Seeds of Well-Being. But then, in our sixth week of meeting, I encountered a study that complicated things for me a little bit. We were taking a look at studies that focused on hedonic adaptation, or in other words, that focused on the question, can money buy happiness? There was one particular study done on, done on this question in 2010 by Daniel Kahneman and Angus Deaton out of Princeton. In their published results, they reported, as you might expect from the trope, no, money cannot buy happiness. Money does not water the seed of joy in us. But with one caveat. While money had no bearing on joy to someone making a comfortable living, whether they were making $75,000 or $750,000, money did have a bearing on someone who was not making a comfortable living, a significant bearing. It turns out that for people, to unable, people unable to meet their basic needs, who did not have the assurance of enough food, freedom, or adequate shelter, this study reported weaker levels of joy, leading us to want to amend the aphorism, money can't buy happiness unless you don't have any. Then it actually makes a pretty big difference. It turns out that for some, the seed of joy is buried so deep by injustice that it is very hard to nourish. For some, the seed of joy is buried under the rocky soil of economic inequity or lack of access to health care. It's choked out by weeds of systemic racism and threats of violence. Those same basic nourishing practices we talked about, they're still available, they still work, but they are much more difficult to cultivate. The result being that the seed never has much of a chance to grow. 
And when we read our texts this morning, it becomes clear to me that this is the position from which they were written. The Magnificat and Isaiah's sermon were written by those who hadn't seen the sprout of joy for far too long. It is the work of those too long denied the basic human rights of freedom, dignity, or an adequate income. The joy in Isaiah's sermon was the joy that, after a long season of exile and poverty, God has sent me to bring good news to those who are poor, to heal broken hearts, to proclaim release to those held captive and liberation to those in prison. So let us joyfully exalt in our God, Isaiah wrote, who makes justice sprout and blossom like seeds growing from the earth. The joy in Mary's song was the joy that, after struggling to breathe under the military boot of a dominating empire, God has deposed the mighty from their thrones and raised the lowly to high places. God has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. God has come to the aid of Israel, keeping the promises made to Sarah and Abraham and their descendants forever. This is the kind of literature that comes from a community that has been unable to water the seeds of their joy for too long. It is the joy of one who has been watching and waiting through a very long night and now catches the first ray of liberation on the horizon. For some, the seed of joy is buried so deep by injustice that nourishment has a hard time reaching it. But there is hope. A few minutes ago, I shared part of a quote from Viktor Frankl, that happiness cannot be pursued, it must ensue. But that's not the full quote. It continues with, and it does so only as the side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself, or as the byproduct of one's surrender to something other than oneself. In other words, our seeds of joy are nourished, not by grasping at pleasure or seeking out distraction, but in surrender to the God who fights for justice and equity. When our well-being group had been meeting for about eight weeks, as we came to the end of our time together, I came across another study that's worth mentioning. In 2002, Dr. Richard J. Davidson, a professor of psychology at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, began doing studies in partnership with Matthew Ricard, a Buddhist monk who also holds a PhD in molecular biology. The studies went like this. Ricard would climb into an MRI, and Davidson would observe his brain as Ricard practiced meta-meditation, a meditation focused on loving-kindness. It's a meditation that we've done before, one that starts with, may I be free, may I be happy, may I be healthy, and then expands to, may friends be free, happy, healthy, and then enemies, and eventually to all of humanity. Well, as Ricard meditated, Davidson watched the monitors. And he was shocked. 
because the parts of the brain associated with joy caught fire as soon as Ricard started his meditation. They would go on to discover that such meditation can actually alter the structure and size of particular cortical areas of your brain. And other studies have continued to consistently show strong joy strongly associated with things like acts of kindness and generosity, service and connection with others. Our truest selves, it seems, are hardwired for love. Here's another way to say that. The joy of the wealthy is tied up in the joy of the oppressed. If you want to nourish the seed of your joy, then that path will take you into the heart of justice, into total surrender to the God of love. Now, don't misunderstand. This doesn't mean that there's a simplistic formula. It's not that when we work for justice, the world somehow owes us good feelings. That would just be another form of distraction, of prosperity gospel. Those who believe things like that are destined to burnout and frustration. What this does mean is that when we surrender to God, when we surrender to the God in us, the part of us that is generous and humble, that loves justice and mercy, then we access an abundant part of ourselves, a flow of giving and receiving love that carries in it the inherent and uncaused joy of God. Our seeds of joy are nourished, not by grasping at pleasure or seeking out distraction, but in surrender to the God who fights for justice and equity. So, people of God, what is there left to do but surrender? What is left but to let go of that false joy of something that is out there, the empty promise of craving and distraction that we have chased for far too long, the false joy that has never actually delivered. For the sake of real joy, for the sake of the joy of those around us, let us die to those parts of ourselves and allow to be born a new, a new humanity, one that values justice over indulgence. Let us give birth to the kind of spirit that invests its treasure not in banks but in the bellies of the poor, not in some attic to be lost to moth and rust, but in the kingdom of heaven on earth. Let us be ones who surrender to the God that can be born through us, the God of liberation to whom Mary and Isaiah cry out. This is death, and it is life, and it is sustenance, and it is unconditional joy, and it is not out there, but it's right here, at hand. People of God, may we know the joy of surrender. Amen.
fear or joy And what is the difference? There's a change coming on the wind My God, it's electric needles and stitches Like there's a new light among the stars Just out of my vision What joy could come from darkness And not destroy the place we made Speak. 
Speaker.